I'm eager to get into the Word with you. And so, would you meet me in 2 Samuel chapter 5? It's been two weeks since we've come to this book. And so, I'm especially excited to return to this text with you. Meet me in 2 Samuel chapter 5. And when I hear the rustling of the leaves cease, we'll pray. Lord, we thank you for another Friday night, for you have, in your sovereignty, allowed us to be in this place. Lord, it was our desire, but more importantly, it is your will for us to be in your house at this time. And Lord, we recognize that, and we are overwhelmed by the privilege of being able to receive spiritual food for our souls. And Lord, we ask that there would be life in the delivery of this study, and there would also be an openness in the reception of every word that you have prepared for us. Lord, cancel every distraction externally, internally. And Lord, would you subdue anything that would try to exalt itself above or against the knowledge of God. We want to be molded and shaped into the very image that you, that you have predestined for us. That is our longing and our yearning. Thank you that that desire alone is a miracle granted by the Holy Spirit. We are fully aware that we are a product of your grace and power. Now, Lord, may that grace and power continue as you sanctify us more and more. In Jesus' name, amen. For quite some time, you and I have been studying the life of, of David carefully throughout the scriptures as we have uh, taken the time to pause at almost every episode that would try to record this man's dramatic journey to the throne of Israel. And so much has been learned already from the days of David as a humble shepherd boy in his father's field. It was no small expedition from his days of his first encounter with the prophet Samuel to the establishment of his government in the city of Hebron. But what felt so far and what seemed so long is now here, meaning as we open to this chapter, you and I are really standing at the threshold of the fulfillment of the prophetic call over David's life. You have to remember that David was called to be the king of all of Israel. And at this moment, he's about to be recognized and he's about to be crowned as such. And this is really a David's third and final anointing. David's life is made up really... There are, monumental things throughout his life, but there are three anointings that David experienced throughout his life. The first one was a private anointing. It was performed by Samuel at the house of Jesse, David's father. The second anointing was a public anointing. It was the anointing that took place with the tribe of Judah, his kinsmen, where he became the, the ruler at Hebron. And now we come to the third and final anointing, which I would refer to as the pinnacle anointing. So you have the private, you have the public, and now you have the pinnacle. You have the, the climax, so to speak, of his call, where he is now going to be designated the ruler over every tribe of Israel, which was in fact God's will from the beginning. And so as we arrive here to this chapter, we are really coming to a new chapter in David's life, and it is no small chapter. Up to this point, you and I got a glimpse of the humble shepherd boy, the son of Jesse, unknown, unnamed, unsung hero. And then we saw David elevated as the servant of Saul. A particular honor was given to him. A particular promotion was given to David. And he went from the servant of Saul to the hero of Israel. Celebrity, praise, adored, loved, cherished. And he went from being the hero to the fugitive of Israel unjustly. He was exiled. He was driven out of his home, out of his, his work, out of his familiarity into the wilderness. And from there, we know that through a series of events, he became the king of Judah. And now we will see him as the king of Israel. From this moment on, for the rest of our study in this book, you and I will behold just that. We will examine the life of David in the position that God had ordained for him. The ruler and the leader of this chosen people. 
And it is in the first five verses of, of chapter five where we're gonna spend our study. There's a lot of verses here. I thought we were gonna go longer, but as I studied, I thought you can't pass these five verses, at least in my estimation. And what these five verses really serve is as, as a, really a summary of David's inauguration into this new role. But this summary, listen, should not be skimmed over because if you and I have the discipline and the desire to know what God will say, he has much to say in these verses that we would think are just transitional. And so let's read these verses. Verse one, then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. You have your Bibles? Look at the first verse. And in the first verse, I argue that there are at least two things that we can learn. One deals with a commendation of David. The other deals with a condemnation of the general population. One is a, a scornful thing concerning the Israelites, and one is a praiseworthy thing concerning the man David. Let's deal with the condemnation of Israel. Notice here that some time has passed between David being, remember, the king of Judah and David becoming the king of Israel. How much, how much time has passed? Does anybody remember the exact number of years? I mean, we just read it, but seven years. Seven years. For seven years, David occupied just one faction, one part of this nation, and what's interesting is, at the same time, we learn here by confession of the Israelites that during those seven years, they were fully aware that David ought to be the king over all of Israel. Didn't they say that? And the Lord said, in the second part of verse 2, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel. So for seven years, at least seven years, the people believed and understood that David was the true king. Not Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, but David. But throughout those seven years, they were unwilling and held back from uniting and acting upon that truth. And so this is an indictment. In fact, let me be more specific. What we have before us is yet another example of the distress of even the devastation that comes from, you, you want to catch this, delayed obedience. Delayed obedience. I mean, they knew very well that David ought to be the king, and they did not, they did not work towards that goal. They didn't make it happen. They, they trusted in something else. They believed a lie. And what we see here is that they had the full revelation. They had the light. They had what God wanted. They had a decree. And on top of all, they had David himself proving his calling because of his leadership abilities being confirmed throughout his life before them. And what we, what we behold now is this, that this is a commentary of the unfortunate reality of so many who know so much about God, who've heard so much gospel, and yet at the same time refuse to submit to the truth that, that it demands. Maybe you're that person in here. This is what, like your 700th sermon, and yet nothing has changed. Your heart is not fully given over to Christ. I look at this and I think to myself, what loss? Consider and count the loss of this nation because of this prolonged pause of making David king. Remember the casualties between the civil war with Ishbosheth and David? Remember that? Realize that at the same time, the Philistines are still oppressing the nation of Israel. You still have that going on as well. They were so busy with their internal strife, they couldn't even deal with the real enemy. Welcome to most of the problems in local churches. On top of that, you, you, you see that there is the sluggish rise of the nation on the global scale, which will, which will accelerate once David becomes king, and so they're robbing themselves of those abundant blessings in various ways as well. Here's what I want to tell you. Our losses always outweigh whatever gain we think we attain 
when we pacify our conscience and think we can pave our own way in life. You will always lose. Always. Again, whatever win you think you're getting, it will always, always, always be outweighed by the loss. Every time. People tend to comfort that kind of compromise by rehearsing Christian lingo. Well, God will restore the years that the locusts have eaten. God will redeem the years that I've burned up for myself. And and God will miraculously just make it all okay again. Can I give you the biblical answer? Yes and no. Yes and no. I know I might have shattered your coffee mug, but it's yes and no. If you mean that God will redeem the years, though you knowingly understood what it meant to follow Jesus Christ and still went the other way, that he will forgive you, restore you, and use you again, then yes, he will redeem. But if in that same argument you believe that God will somehow miraculously restore those years and that time, then no. There is a cost to disobedience. I know people won't tell you that, but this preacher will tell you that. There is a heavy cost of disobedience. But I will also say this, because I've counseled many people who grieve over their loss, who rehearse the fact that they knew very well what they were doing when they were out in the world, and they can't seem to get over it. And so let me say this, if this is you, if if even tonight is a decision for you to say, enough is enough, I'm not going to waver between what is true and what is false. I will not serve Baal and the Lord. I will serve the Lord only. Do not overthink. Do not prolong your meditation, pondering too much about the years or the months or the weeks that you have wasted living for yourself. If you're going to put your energy into anything, put it into this, that whatever time you have left, that God would use it maximally for his glory. Just do that. Lord, I walked away, I, I've, I've failed to understand the significance of your will for my life, of obedience to your word, but I can't do anything. These scars will remain, but I want to make the rest of my life count. And that's a prayer God will answer. That is something he will redeem, because he is that good, that gracious. Do you realize that there's a contrast between Saul and David in these first two verses? Especially in verse two. In the people's mind, You have Saul and David, and these two men really symbolize a spiritual truth. They saw that King Saul was a disappointment. And they realized that David was the truth, and he was the one that would bring true fruit. So here's how you have to understand. Saul symbolizes your choice and mine in the flesh. David symbolizes God's purpose. And what we see here is that every time we elevate our desires, our wisdom, our purposes, it will never fail to fall short and to lie to you about its promises. All the time. But when you see David, when you see God's choice, you will never go wrong. You will never go wrong. And an honest evaluation of any life that is lived in a season of sin will confess that my personal ambition did not live up to the expectations that persuaded me to begin with. It will never be able to satisfy you in the way that Christ Jesus can satisfy you because your soul was designed to be intermingled with him. And so listen, you don't have to waste several years to do that. I remember preaching at a youth conference and right after I preached on a very similar subject, a young man at 18 years old sat in the front row and he seemed like he was disappointed with my message. And so I sat with him and I said, why, why the grief? I didn't say it like that, it was much kinder. And he said, I hear what you're saying, but I'm not convinced. I'm going to college and I will do what I think I want to do and when I'm ready, I'll come back. I said, it doesn't work like that. And I looked at him and I said, you're not You're not curious, you're hungry. You're not curious, you're hungry. And I tell you, the buffet that you're headed towards is gonna make you very sick. And so why don't you settle it now and save your years and save psychological and spiritual damage and just give your heart to the Lord now. 
He's warning you now. He's in love, calling your attention now. He knew exactly what you were thinking. He knew your premeditated sin. He knows what you signed up for, and he wants to rescue from that. And guess what? He never gave me an answer. I don't know where he is to this day. Why don't you spare yourself from the mistake of believing that you can govern your own life and give it to the one who made it? And no joy that no other joy can give. This is the condemnation of the nation of Israel. It took them so long to finally act upon the truth that they, they knew in the bottom of their hearts. But look at the commendation of David. Verse 2, in times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who let out and brought in Israel. So, so here's what's amazing. They're acknowledging that throughout Saul's years as king, David was really the blessing. David was the one who really served them. And Saul, who was supposed to guide and lead the nation, failed to do so, as we just heard. Now, many things can be said about Saul. Many things can be said about Israel in this text. But I want to just focus on David uh, in a very personal way. What they're not saying is, David, you try to usurp the authority of Saul, and you try to push your way to the throne. We know, we've studied enough of David to see that he had the exact opposite attitude and humility waiting upon God to be promoted to that place. All they're saying is, you've proven your gifting, you've proven your leadership abilities to be the king over our people. But look at it in a a relevant way. Look at it on a personal note. This verse helps us to see something about David and something about ourselves. That you do not need any seat of honor, any place of authority to be able to bless people. This is David prior to him being king. He's becoming king now. Leading up to this point, still the people had a lasting impression made upon them based on David's presence in, the, in their lives. And that is something extremely encouraging for the person who yearns to be used for the glory of God. Why do you have to believe that in order to be effective, there needs to be some elevation of status or some popular vote or some credential? It's as simple as honoring what God has brought to you and what has, he's given to through you, and then just walking in that. It's as simple as that. There's no need to complicate it. And so put your soul at rest. Settle it in your heart that you rather remain in obscurity if that means that you'll be fruitful. A true success in the economy of God is not measured by your exalted status in Christendom. I know for some people it is. You heard it at the conference, simple service Simple service to the ones that God in his providence has brought before you and just enjoying the knowledge that you are simply pleasing your master and whatever he demands of you. In fact, if Saul teaches anything is that you can have the position, you can have the degrees, you can have the credentials, you can have the position and be totally bankrupt of true substance. Saul did nothing for his people, at least in the latter years. David He wasn't king. And they said, you let us out. You blessed us. You served us. Well, praise God. So you'll never have a YouTube account. Who cares? Serve God. You'll never be invited to a conference. Who cares? Serve God. It doesn't matter. Nobody will write about you. Who cares? Serve God. Now we come to verse 3. We see, so all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. So here's what happens. You have the elders, the representatives of the tribes who approach David, and it is at this point that they want to acknowledge him and say, you are the king. Here's what's amazing. Here's why we need to know the totality of the scriptures. The complementary book found in 1 Chronicles gives us even deeper details of what's happening now. This event is huge, and so huge is this event that in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, you can turn there now and tuck your hand in that place. In 1 Chronicles chapter 12, you have a list of the the military of David and the tribes who chose to send certain amount of men to join the military. And what's amazing is when you look at the inventory, there is insightful and instructive insight about these men and the quality of men they were and how they contributed to the kingdom of David. And that can be translated in certain truths about the kingship of Jesus Christ. 
things that will stir our hearts as we have declared him to be Lord over our lives. And so if you're there, 1 Chronicles chapter 12, look here with me in verse 23. So this is the same event, but Chronicles gives us a different vantage point of the same occurrence. These are the numbers of the divisions of the armed troops who came to David and Hebron to turn the kingdom of Saul over to him according to the word of the Lord. So now you have the divisions of the army coming. We're not going to go over each tribe, only highlighting a few. And so you have all 12 tribes, the number of men and most of them, and certain qualities attached to these tribes that I hope will get you to realize the spiritual significance in light of Jesus' kingdom and those, those who join his kingdom and who are part of his kingdom. Look at verse 26. Let's go to the tribe of Levi. First Chronicles 12, 26. Of the Levites, 4,600. The prince, Jehodiah, of the house of Aaron, and with him, 3,700. Zadok, a young man, mighty in valor, and 22 commanders from his own father's house. What's interesting of the fact that the Levites are participating in this? Any idea? Not that they don't have men. Who? Land. Okay, that's one thing. But in relation to the military operations. The priest. They're designated as worshipers. They are what? They're mediators between God and people, namely the nation of Israel. And so they're set apart for a different purpose. What are they doing taking up arms and joining the ranks? Now, there are different arguments. I argue that if you look at different scriptures, you'll see that one of the roles of the priests is that they were to actually physically guard and protect the house of worship. And so I think that this is the intention behind their participation, that they're not necessarily going out to fight like the different tribes were, but they would be designated for a certain operation that is connected to the house of God. But besides the point, notice that when Le the Levites are brought up, there is a particular man that is highlighted. And this man here is found in verse 28, Zadok. And all we're told about Zadok is that he was a young man, mighty in valor. Here's what I take out of this. In light of our relationship with the Lord Jesus, this should excite the young believer in seeing that God has a particular honor and takes note of what you and I do with our youthful years. This is a young man, and that is important to God. The Spirit highlights that in connection to David, and we see that the Spirit also highlights that in different portions of Scripture in this dispensation in God's redemptive history. But I also see something here that those who might be skeptical of the young in our generation, the youth of our generation, take note and understand that we should never lower our expectation of who God can recruit into his army. It looks bleak out there. It, it, it looks very, very scary. But know this, that God can, in fact, move hearts to the degree that even the young can be intensely devoted to the cause of Jesus Christ. If we're not careful, not only will our efforts diminish in reaching and preaching to Gen Z and the future generations, or if we do see somebody who comes into our church and, and they have this zeal and this passion and excitement, even though their theological vocabulary might not be so developed, we would overlook them or even dismiss the idea of investing in them because we think, well, well this, is, this is emotional and I remember that day when I was like that too and, and, and they're just going to become normal. Normal and things will, they'll get busy and, and so just, okay, this, it's very cute and it's very, it's very exciting to see. It's going to wear off. I remember hearing somebody recently ask, actually saying in light of all the things that we're seeing in in our evangelical circles, all these popular pastors who are falling left, right, and center. And everybody's trying to understand how this is happening. And I heard somebody say this comment that I've never heard before up to this point, that one of the common denominators of all these pastors who are falling, who have great platforms, is that they all started very young in ministry, meaning they all started in their 20s or 30s in their leadership positions. And not young in faith, young in years, young in number. And I think 
To be honest, the Apostle Paul will have some trouble with that interpretation of the scandals in our day. And I can show you many biblical examples of how that is not the case. And here's an example before us. Did that happen to Zadok? He was a young man, mighty in valor, meaning he was courageous, he was fearless. What happened to Zadok? Any idea? Did he fall off into the wayside? Did he disappear in the background? Did he just become a normal servant in the kingdom of David? Who is Zadok? Well, when we get to 1 Kings chapter 2, many believe that the same Zadok is the Zadok who Solomon ordained to be the highest priest in his kingdom. And so Zadok, who started out as just this young man, this warrior, ended up becoming a leader of worship. And so do not despise those who are young. Do not despise what God can do in you, young man, young woman. Believe that he has much to invest in you, and the more time you give him, the more he can do in you. And so now we come down to verse 29. We're still in 1 Chronicles 12, and we come to another tribe, the tribe of Benjamin. And what's interesting here is as we come to this tribe, it is a very unlikely people group to have any kind of involvement with David's ordination for the simple reason of what? Saul is from the tribe of Benjamin, is he not? And here we read of the tribe of Benjamin. And what are we told about this tribe? Verse 29, of the Benjaminites, the kinsmen of Saul, 3,000 of whom the majority had to that point kept their allegiance to the house of Saul. And so it seems strange, and it seems unlikely, but it happened. The Bible highlights the fierce loyalty of this tribe to their brother Saul. They shared the same blood. And so strong were their ties to this man that even up to this point when David became the nationally recognized king, a majority of them said, we're not going to admit it. The jealousy was too intense. The envy was so tense. They would not even dare to give him the attention that the other tribes were giving him. And yet at the same time, in this tribe, we were told that 3,000 did. They did say yes. They did wholeheartedly and humbly acknowledge it. And they were willing to separate themselves from their brethren in blood to come to pledge allegiance to something that is deeper than blood, and that is the things of the Spirit. And so they approached David, they acknowledged David in great humility, and that's exactly what the Bible highlights with this tribe. Their great willingness to humble themselves to God's will over any emotional or any logical understanding of what should take place in their lives. And it's amazing to think how these men were willing to hold on to Saul's dynasty even when it was looking terribly wrong. Remember, before this, for seven years, the kingdom of Saul and his son Ishbosheth was getting weaker and weaker and weaker. And yet, up to this point, almost you can say to the last second, the, the tribe of Benjamin would not dare say David is the true king. But then 3,000 said yes. How does that resonate with you and I in light of Jesus Christ? Here's how it should resonate. Do you know anybody who is extremely stubborn in their sin? Do you know anybody who can almost never be persuaded to consider the gospel of Jesus Christ? Is there any hard-headed people that you love dearly? And it seems like they would never even think about the condition of their soul, their eternal destination. Well, be inspired by these men. Because what we see here is possible for them. There is hope in this. Even the most unlikely candidates can actually bend the knee at the cross of Jesus Christ. So don't give up. And don't lose hope. Even though people like this tribe could not be easily shaken, though their worlds were being shaken, it's possible that at the right time, they can say yes to the Lord. And what I, mean, when I, what I think is so amazing here is that this is not just a reflection of the hearts of this, of this people group, but a heart of David, the grace of God, willing to accept these men without any hesitation, without any rebuke, without any program they needed to enroll in in order to prove their loyalty to himself, he received them immediately. 
And you can say, as I said, at the last second, I mean, really, when they, they lost all hope, it was like, we have, we have nothing now. Like, D- David is our only option, so to speak. Now, they didn't come with that attitude. I don't think they came because they know they lost, but they did come when they lost all hope. Because we read later on that every tribe came with wholehearted devotion to David. And so this this group of 3,000 genuinely came to David, but they came at an interesting time. When life failed them. When plans failed them. And I've talked to people who have even expressed honestly, brother, I kind of feel guilty that I came to the Lord at a low point in my life. Like, what does that say about my love for Christ? I only came to him when everything was broken, when I hit rock bottom, I mean, is that really a way to give myself to somebody and to their cause and to their message? And, and I just don't feel like it's right. And I always respond the same way. You are the perfect candidate for Jesus Christ. Because he said, come to me, all who are heavy, heavy laden, all who are weary, all who are sick and tired of life, if I can paraphrase, who are overwhelmed, who are burdened, who are carrying something that is overwhelming them. Come to me. And so he beckons you to come at that time. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, now you come? And so those years when I was telling you to believe on me and everything was going well, you said no, but now that you need help, you want some. That's not our Lord. That's us. That's not the Lord Jesus. And so even though this tribe came at the last second, it's a reflection of how God is willing to swing open the gates of heaven even in your dying breath, though with every other breath throughout your life, you lived it for the devil and your flesh. Now, I don't propose that you wait for your dying breath. You might not get one. In other words, you might not have that bed where you can lay and contemplate your existence without pain, intruding with your thought process. Wait, no, now. But for that rare case, realize that Christ's arms are still open like the thief on the cross. These men came to David when? When they lost all hope. Is Christ any less gracious? I know you know the answer to that. Now we move on to the next tribe. Look at verse 30. Of the Ephraimites, 20,800 mighty men of valor, famous men in their father's houses. So here's a spotlight now coming to this tribe. And what is brought forth is the fact that among these men, there were famous men from their tribe, even famous across the nation. And I think that's quite interesting because the Spirit of God saw it necessary to highlight their prominence, their exalted status, their success, and how they were eagerly willing to humble themselves to God's program that presided over them. They said, yes, we are significant individuals, but we see something greater than us. And so famous men came and surrendered to the call of God. Here's what's amazing. When you and I know of somebody who becomes famous or successful, whether in in the ministry realm or secular realm, if I can use that word, we often think they're a lost cause. It's done. And that's not a wrong assessment because we know the grip that power and, and fame and accomplishments we know that what that grip can do, and it can cloud someone's judgment very quickly to see their own need to be saved or to prioritize God's purposes in their lives. But what's amazing here is that these men, these men proved otherwise. Listen, success is no rival to the satisfaction that God can bring. It's amazing. I've talked to so many Christians throughout my time in ministry who are more passionate about personal success than about the cause of Christ. It's disappointing. It's heartbreaking. But what we see with these men is that no matter how successful you become, it will never fill that void. It will never fill that void. Ask anybody who had an amount of money in mind to make, and they get there, and what happens? They want more. And when they get there, they want more. When they get there, that's what Ecclesiastes says. Ask anybody who has a number of followers on their social media. They get that and what happens. It's just these digits on a screen. It does not fill the soul. And these men here prove that no matter what heights you reach in this life, there is no greater satisfaction than being in the will of God. And they do that here. And they surrender. And here's another thought to consider. You have those like the Pharisees who have prominence, who have prestige, and they discourage the possibility or the mock the concept of anybody of, of importance following Jesus Christ. 
right? Do you remember what they said when they send the soldiers out to arrest Jesus in John chapter 7? I love that verse. They come back and they're empty-handed and the Pharisees are like, well, where is he? Like, no one has spoken like this man. I, I just can't imagine what it was like. They were spellbound when they heard Jesus speak. They came, I can just imagine, with aggressive faces. They came with intimidation. And as they stood there in the presence of the Word made flesh, and the Lord was just speaking these glorious truths, they melted and they were mesmerized, only to return like little puppies. No one's ever spoken like this man. And I want to read to you, I have it here before me so you don't have to turn there unless you want to. I want to read to you how the Pharisees responded. In John 7, 47, the Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Like, what arrogance. Have, have you been deceived? And here's what they say. Do you know any authorities or do you know any Pharisees that believe in him? You know, here's a translation. Anybody who is intelligent, anybody who seems to be educated, anybody who seems to be insightful or innovative, such people don't follow Jesus Christ. Only, only simpletons do. Only people who need a crutch in life do. Only people who can't rely on their own strength or can't strategize and how to get themselves out of a rut. Those are the people. The authorities and the Pharisees, do you, any, do you know any of them who, who have claimed that Jesus was the Messiah? So why would you consider it? And that's what we have in our educational systems too. Do you believe that God created the world in seven days? You, know, you, you believe, and they, and they mock the idea. That if you believe these things, that you have a low IQ, or that you're not educated, or that you were just isolated from truth, their idea of truth. But we see that these men show otherwise. That it's possible, it's possible to be men of importance, men of success, men of esteem, high esteem, and still surrender to the will of God joyfully. And in the New Testament, you have many examples. If, if you didn't know it, you have many examples of famous people, up, upstanding people in society who have chosen to follow Jesus. Any ideas who? Think about it. Think of famous people who have given their lives to Christ in the New Testament. I'm asking. If you have an idea, lift your hand. The Ethiopian eunuch. He was a high official in the courts of the queen. Yes. Yeah. Exactly, the man who decided to open up his tomb untouched for Jesus' burial. He was a secret disciple, but he was praised for his devotion. Any other famous people? Nicodemus, yes. It is debated whether he truly followed Jesus, but it's kind of hard to see how he didn't love the Lord when he came to the burial site with 70 pounds of ointment. That's what John says. That's the last that you see of Nicodemus. So Jesus confronts him in John 3, and we see him speaking up in John 7. And when you come to John, the end of John, Jesus is about to be buried, and Nicodemus comes with Joseph, and we're told with 70 pounds of ointment. Like, he had to have brought a cart or something. That's not very, being very discreet. Sure. But there's like little people, like not little people, but names and little references that, that we don't even consider. They're there. The end of Romans, Erastus, Erastus, right? And he was the treasurer. He was the treasurer in Rome. There's another one in Acts 13.1. When those men were together worshiping and fasting and seeking the Lord, and then Paul and Barnabas are set apart as a missionary team. There's a men in there. Menain, the lifelong friend of who? Who was he a lifelong friend to? Herod the Tetra. You go to Luke 8, and one of Herod's household, Herod had a lot of people. Herod, household manager, was a follower of Jesus Christ. And so you even had a man, Menahin, who was a lifelong friend to Herod, who obviously and clearly hated Jesus and mocked Jesus, become a follower of Jesus, and he played a huge role in the early church, actually. So it's not impossible. It is possible. Christ can save to the uttermost, the most unlikely. Believe it. Now let's move forward. Verse 31. Do I still have you tonight? Verse 31. Of the half-tribe of Manasseh, 18,000 who were expressly named to come to make David king. This one personally touches my heart. 
who were expressly named to come and make David king. So what's happening here is that the half-tribe of Manasseh, they realized the monumental shift that is taking place in Israel's history. Like, this is huge. This is a huge turning point. And instead of just sending anybody to the celebration, they, they handpick, they select certain emissaries, right? These uh, diplomatic ambassadors to represent their tribe so that they can go with great honor. And that's because they saw how great of an honor it was to be able to come and make David king, to be able to acknowledge him. And so th- this, was a, this was a marvelous thing in the eyes of this people. This is no, no in- insignificant thing. This is not a small thing. This is a great thing. And so great it was that they wanted to send their best. They wanted to send their best for this event to represent their clan. How much more? How much more you and I as ambassadors of Jesus Christ? Think about it. There is no greater identity, there is no finer purpose, there is no superior rank in this world that can come close to being a servant of the Most High God. Understand that and believe that because when somebody comes to Christ, we as a church, we celebrate it. We celebrate it like like it's a birthday. Make a whole day out of it, and rightfully so. But it is also equally no small thing, not just to be born again, but to live for him in the day-to-day. And you and I must be conscious of that at all times. These people realized it. They, they realized it, and they prepared themselves from head to toe. They calculated and they designated so that through, through this deployment of these ambassadors, people would realize these people are serious. I wonder if you and I, we we feel the weight of that when we go to social events. Do you you feel the uniform that you're wearing? I, I represent him. Or maybe in the simple way of dressing ourselves. I know that's controversial these days. Or the way we communicate or, or how, how, how we are. I mean, does it ever occur to us, I, I've been commissioned. Like, I, I represent a different embassy. An embassy not in nations here, but of a permanent one. Of one that is to come and take over all others. It's an honorable identity, but with that great identity comes awesome responsibility, which means that you and I, wherever we go, must be aware that I am one of heaven's delegates. I am a deputy. I am sent by him. He is my king, and I want to represent him well. More can be said about that, but we go to verse 32. Of Issachar... So now this tribe, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do, 200 chiefs and all their kinsmen under their command. We're not told about the number of people they had, but we are told of the quality of the people of this tribe. And the thing that is brought forth, the comment that sticks out, is that the men of Issachar were discerning men. They were able to interpret the times and then from that know what they should do at this time. So there, there's much debate about what it means when they says they had understanding of the times. But based on the context and their participation in all of this, it's pretty simple. These men were able to read the circumstances around them and then take the proper course of action that would benefit them and bring about the best results. Here's the thing. What we see with the men of Issachar is, is something every believer should be operating in. And I've alluded, I'm not going to do it this time because I've done it in so many, so many segments. I've alluded to 1 Corinthians 7 about how Paul interprets the present conflict and distress of his day. And then based on what was happening in his day, by the Spirit brings about particular instruction of how Christians should live. In light of the civil distress, in light of the, the cultural things that were happening. He said, okay, do you see what's happening here? This is how we ought to respond. And so you and I, with with spiritual eyes and with wisdom, we, we must be at all times be able to look at global events, what's happening in our nation, and not try to find the particular date in which Jesus is coming back, but allow these things to motivate us to straighten up for our redemption is nigh. 
He tells that to the Romans. He's like, I'm paraphrasing, but look at the hour. Our salvation is nearer than ever before. Wake up from sleep. I said this a few weeks ago. I'll say it again. Christians have been asleep for the past two years. I mean, I'll hammer this truth and deem me repetitive, if you may. But listen, you still have Christians who are more concerned that they can't go to their favorite spots or go to vacations or they're worried about their future than about how this relates to the prophetic timetable of the return of Christ. I heard more Christians complain how they couldn't go to this and couldn't go to that when everything broke out initially with the pandemic or whatever you want to call it. More concerned about all of that. I can't do this and I can't do that than the fact that do you realize that nothing like this has ever happened in our history? Like if this is, forget your little vacation spot. Forget that you can't sit in your favorite restaurant. We're, we're closer to the return of Christ more than ever. And so to be honest, in the, in the past two years, there was a lot of lack of discernment if anything else. So much lack of discernment. To be honest, the secular people had more discernment than most of people who were Christians. They were able to see the severity. They were able to see how all of this will affect our future in a, in a, in a no-return policy way. And most believers are just dragging their feet. and Just wake up. Be alert. This is what we hear. This is what we see here. These people who came to the ranks of David were, were an alert people, were an aware people, were sensitive people, were calculated people, were serious people, and believers should be the same. Let's end with Zebulun, shall we? Verse 33, of Zebulun, 50,000 seasoned troops equipped for battle with all the weapons of war to help David, now here's the point, with singleness of purpose, with singleness of purpose. This is what's brought forth to the surface, okay? These men had undivided commitment to David and his kingdom. They were sold out. There was no other desire that they had. There was nothing that had preeminence more than the fact that David is our king and we will do what he wishes. And what you see here is it's pretty straightforward, is it not? If David had this, how much more the king of kings, the true anointed one, capital A, capital O, singleness of purpose, my affections are not divided here. I don't have, like, the pie. I don't have 75% for Jesus, 5% for my job, 10% for this, and 2.5% for that. It's Jesus. All of it. And everything orbits around it. Jesus is not something orbiting around something else. Everything revolves around that. And that's exactly what these men are reflecting. And so you and I have to understand that if this is what David demanded, how much more our Lord? David saved these men politically, economically. Christ saved us eternally. You know, it's one thing to volunteer for the kingdom of God when you feel extra motivated or when you are not so worldly for a stretch of a few weeks, but that is not what Jesus asks of us. Unwavering commitment and conviction and faithfulness to the cross of Christ. And here's what's amazing. It wasn't just Zebulun. Scroll down to verse 38, and what do we read? All these men of war arrayed in battle order came to Hebron with a whole heart to make David king over all Israel. Likewise, all the rest of Israel have single mind to make David king. That's the overarching commentary over every tribe. A whole heart, like, this is why we live. This is, this is what we exist for. This is why we're here. And notice the fruit of that. I want you to see the sequence of events, and this is how it concludes in verse 40. Be patient as I read this, and pay attention to the last few verse, verses, the last few words of the last verse. And also their relatives from as far as Issachar and Zebulun and Naphtali came bringing food on donkeys and on camels and on mules and on oxen, abundant provisions of flour, cakes of figs, clusters of raisins and wine and oil, oxen and sheep, for there was joy in Israel. There should be like a sigh for the reader because up to this point for years, for decades, 
There wasn't joy in Israel. And if there was any joy, it was just bursts of superficial joy. When they made Saul king, that wasn't God's will, but it was a temporary relief. But the pain that they knew, the loss, the disappointment, and then Abner came and he made it even worse for another seven years. But everything was made right and true joy erupted in the hearts of the people once David became king. What this is all about, if you want to just simplify the quest of every single person in life, is that every person is searching for joy. And they are experimenting to know what it is that brings the most lasting and pain-free happiness in life. If that's you in this place, or if you're a person who can honestly examine your heart and say, I don't know if I have lasting joy, that doesn't mean if you have lasting joy that you won't shed tears and you won't be conflicted and you won't be tested and you won't endure trials, but what that it does mean is that down deep inside there's this deep-seated contentment. Listen, if you're a person in this place who can say, look, that's not really real here. I mean, at most, my Christian experience is being stimulated emotionally because a preacher had a good day and he preached a pretty well-thought-out sermon. I want to just give you a question based on this that will help you know why it is you're in that place. Because the sequence of events is clear, right? After certain things were done, then the joy was made known. So all you have to do is go back to verse 38 and ask yourself, does Jesus Christ have my whole heart and am I of single mind to make him my king? If you can't answer that, that is the answer to the lack of joy in your life. Pretty, pretty simple, right? No program you have to join, no pyramid scheme. I don't have to yell at you and try to get you motivated. It's very simple. With my whole heart and with singleness of purpose, is Jesus my king? Do I want to make him my Lord? Do I really want to know him? If not, you will be insecure, unfulfilled, disappointed, hitting your head against the wall, trying one thing after the next, and you'll be no different than the nation of Israel before this, where they tried different kings before they came to the right one. And so answer that, settle that, and I assure you that a joy that you've never known will be unlocked, but remember, this joy was preceded by a willful decision to say, Jesus Christ, Take this stubborn brain of mine and rewire it so that it has single purpose for you. Take this heart that loves to flirt with myself and with everything else, rewire it so that it is devoted to you, and watch how the joy will flush out everything else in your life and keep you sustained in that joy. It's as simple as that. Let's go back and end with the two verses. 2 Samuel 5, 4 and 5, and then we're done. But you don't have anywhere to go anyway, right? David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. The Bible has a tendency to give a summary about something or someone and then to flesh it out in detail. So it seems strange to read about David's full years in reign and then describe the beginnings of his, his uh, government. But you can't skip over this because there's so much to learn just from that verse, first verse in verse 4. David was 30 years old when he began to reign. Just meditate on that. So if he was 30 when he began to reign as the king of Israel, how long was he king over Hebron? Seven years. So how old was he when he became king of Hebron? 23, safely. So if he was 20, any, who here is 23 years old? 23. Imagine becoming a king over a tribe at 23 years old. 
Now, if that means he was 23 when he became king of Hebron, then how old must he have been when he was first anointed by Samuel? For sure, he was under 20 years old. Most people believe, you want to know what age? 15. So who here is 15 years old? Evan? <laughs> you lifted your hand. Some people even believe he was as young as 12, 13. That's kind of hard to imagine, but here, here's the point I want to make. He was anointed definitely under 20. Let's say 15. He wasn't walking in the call of God for his life until 15 years went by. And the point is very simple. God takes his time when he makes his men. God takes his time when he makes his men. I, I hope this point encourages. The point before this point was to wake up the person who is still at the ABCs of Christianity. Like you're still wondering if, if the Lord is really worth giving everything to in your practical day-to-day. -day. You love him, you know he died for you, but you're just like, you have other things in life that are rivaling against that. I'm not, we, we talk to you, okay? You can still pay attention, but who I'm talking to is the person who really, really wants to be used by God. Like you pray about it all the time. You have dreams about it. You long for it. You yearn for it. You have no, you have no other desire in this life. I want to encourage you with this point. God takes his time when he makes his men slash woman. I'm still in the process of breaking this down in my own mind, but it was just an observation I made today when I realized that the scripture says that he reigned for 40 years. Because the first three kings of Israel each reigned for 40 years. Saul, according to Acts, reigned for 40 years. David, who followed, we were just told, 40 years. You go at the end of Solomon's life, 1 Kings 11, he reigned for 40 years. So they shared the same term of office, but how different did they all look? If you were to put Saul, David, and Solomon here and compare compare not just their journeys, but how they ended, how would you categorize it? Here's how I would categorize it. David had a much different journey through that than the other two. The other two ended in devastation. The other two, you can argue, ended in apostasy. The last that we see of Saul is that he consults a witch, which was punishable by death. And the last that you see of Solomon is what? He's worshiping idols because he thought it would be a good idea to marry a thousand people. 700 wives, 300 concubines. And they led him into apostasy. That's how they ended. David, you can't say that about David. He had hiccups. He sinned greatly during his reign. But he was a man after God's heart. 40 years for Saul. 40 years for Solomon. 40 years for David. And yet David stands out from all of them. What was the, the factor? What was the difference maker? I, I think it's many things, and it's worthy of an in-depth study, especially for leaders. How is it that David, in comparison to the other two, had an equal chance with the equal task, do something so different, end up with different results and a different commendation from God? And based on this, I argue, and I'm still processing, perhaps part of the success was God's patient preparation with David. You don't get anything close to David's journey to the throne with Solomon and with Saul, do you? No. And it makes you wonder, does it not? During those years, those 15 years, did God do such a work in David that it was able to sustain him to the end? And that, that is not my subjective hermeneutic, my interpretation of this to try to come up with something clever. That's a biblical truth. What do I mean? Because when you take into account David's preparation, it was riddled with suffering. So much suffering. And there was so much faithfulness that was demanded of him while he was hidden. 
But don't forget the pain. Don't forget the betrayal. Don't forget the doubts. Don't forget the moments that were crushing to his soul. We've, we explored so many psalms that were birthed in those years. And here's why I bring this up, because the Bible tells us how character is developed, and character is the necessary ingredient for longevity in ministry. Romans 5, 3 and 5. Not only, you don't have to turn there, just listen, just pause, and just hear these words. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Christian, it didn't say we endure in our sufferings. That would make sense. We can endure. We have a good God. He gives us power. No, no, no. More than that, we rejoice. That's the infusion of the Holy Spirit in us. That's the work. We rejoice. Have you met a rejoicing, suffering Christian lately? Rejoicing. I've met many suffering Christians. Very few, and I know the temptation to not, very few rejoicing, suffering Christians. And yet that's the standard. Paul says we rejoice in our sufferings. Well, why, Paul? Tell us why. Knowing, so joy is connected to knowledge. Not something miraculous to come before you that you can have a monopoly on and say, look what God did for me. And No, no, knowing something that suffering produces endurance. And endurance, verse 4, produces character. Suffering produces character. What David endured in those 15 years was powerful pruning that can only be known through sovereignly ordained trials and tribulations. He was developed in those years. There was something that was chiseled in the man, and it hurt in the moment. But not as much as it would hurt to fall on your face in idolatry because of the lack of conviction, because of the lack of the fear of God, because of a lack of an experience of the goodness of God through your suffering. So don't despise it, don't shrink from it, don't, don't, don't shriek when you suffer. I'm speaking to the person who really wants to be used by God. Christian character is often matured in the school of suffering. So embrace it. Embrace it with a tight grip and rejoice as you embrace it because Christ is producing something in you. Producing something in you that seminary cannot give you. Producing something in you that a load of money from your denomination cannot give you. Christ takes his time to make his men. And oftentimes, the tools on his belt that he will use are painful in the moment, but glorious in the results. I'm wondering if I should finish on a different note. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. 30 plus 40. When did David die? At the end of his reign. So what age? Does that mess with anybody's Sunday school imagination? It, it, it's even more strange when you go to 1 Kings chapter 1 and you see his physical condition. He could not even warm himself no matter how many blankets they put on him. I mean, when you read about the man in his dying days, you think he was in his late 90s or early 100s. The man died at 70. And here's what I find fascinating, and I will end on this note. If your hand is still tucked in First Chronicles, go to the last chapter. And if it's not, turn there. And notice how the Bible parallels the description of David's reign in concluding fashion. Verse 26 of chapter 29. Thus David, the son of Jesse, reigned over all Israel. We've been reading that. 
the time that he reigned over Israel was 40 years. We just read that. He reigned seven years in Hebron and 33 years in Jerusalem. We just read that. But notice the added, notice the complement of this portion of scripture. Verse 28, then he died at a good age. Now notice this, full of days, full of days, riches and honor, and Solomon his son reigned in his place. 70 years old, and he died at a good old age, right? Full of days. Now, even in, in our standard in society, to hear of somebody dying at 70, you don't get the sense, yeah, that person was ready to go. We know people who are in their late 60s approaching 70s. Like my, my father's in his late 60s. He's approaching 70 soon. To me, 70 there's still life there. There's still, there's still memories to be made. There's still fruit to be produced. And so when we think 70, we can still equate that with a tragedy as a loss, but in our human reasoning. Because here the Holy Spirit says, David died full of days. Because the Bible does not equate fullness of life with the length, but with the substance. Huh? The Bible equates the fullness of life not in length, but in substance. Ergo, Jesus died at 30. Did he die prematurely? No. Did he die full? Yes. Did he die satisfying the will of God? Absolutely. So we have to change our thinking here. You can live 70 years and die full, full of days, with richness, and you can live up to 300 years and be a waste. Think about that. God forbid you can die like your Lord at 33 years of age and still die with glorious purpose in comparison to somebody who lived three times as long as you. So as Christians, we don't, we don't again, we don't equate success or blessing with numbers. That, that's not how we think. Success is not based on the number of people here, but on the substance of each person that represents this ministry. Success is not equated to the number of dollars you have in your bank account, but where your treasure is. There your heart will be also. Success is not equated to how long you live, but what you do with your years. And David was a man who died at 70, no wonder. I mean, the guy went through so many battles. The, the brutality he put his body through, it makes sense. And yet God in his perfect witness said, it's time to go home. May we live a full life, full of days for the glory of God. Lord, we thank you for this Bible study. Lord, we thank you that even through sickness, you're able to be gracious to us. We just pray that the truths that we heard would, would minister to our hearts. And that, Lord, we would be able to leave here with instruction from the Holy Spirit for our lives. Lord, we worship you now. We adore you. And we remind ourselves that we are subjects to your kingdom. You are our king. And gladly, gladly do we declare that you are king. You are the greater David, the son of David, the ruling, reigning Lord who will come back again. And we will behold you on a throne with a scepter in your hands, and the nations will come to bow at your feet. Thank you for calling us to be a part of that. We are overwhelmed by your grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and worship together.